Please have a seat. At this time, one of our elders, Ed Clicker, will come and lead us in the prayers of the people. You're busy this morning. <laughs> but no change in salary. Redeemer of sinners. We come before you this morning in awe of who you are and the works of your hand. For out of nothing you spoke and created all. We come before you this morning, Lord, as your children, crying Abba, Father, as we look to you as children look to their daddies and mommies to meet their needs, to heal their wounds, and to support them in times of trouble. We come to you, Lord, in a troubled world. We ask, Lord God, for peace peace in our hearts for those who are troubled. We ask for peace, Lord God, in our bodies for those who need healing. We ask for peace in our world, which is broken and in disarray. We pray, Lord God, for our missionaries who are taking your word to the outermost parts of the world and to those who are ministering here at home. We pray for your spirit to be upon them mightily, that you would meet their needs and you would bless them as they carry your word to those who have not heard it. We pray that you would open the hearts of people that indeed they would be called unto yourself. We pray, Lord God, for this nation that peace would be here, that your people would take your word forward here. We pray, Lord, for this church, for our leaders, and for everyone who calls upon your name. We pray, Lord, for those who are ill. We pray for healing. We pray for comfort. And we praise you, Lord God, for the, for the many blessings and for the new life. We ask, Lord God, that we would be ever mindful of our need for you and your open arms in that time. We ask for the blessing through the rest of the service in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, any kids are headed to Covenant Kids Worship?
may be dismissed. That's for kids who are four years old through first or second grade. Offer this as an option for them. As always, children are welcome to be here with us as we come to God's Word in Genesis 38. So, last night, uh, Megan and I went out with some friends, and they were asking about what I was preaching on today. That often comes up in conversation. I know it sounds riveting. Um, <laughs> and I said I was, gonna, I, was, I was preaching on the story of Judah and Tamar, and they said they weren't sure they were familiar with that one. And so, I gave them a quick synopsis, and at the end, the wife said, that's in the Bible? Many people, even Christians, are shocked by some of the stories contained in the Bible. We're shocked because we think if the Bible were made into a movie, it would probably be rated like maybe PG at worst. But in fact, a good portion of the Bible is more like NC-17. We often approach the Bible as if it were a series of heartwarming stories designed to inspire us to do good to be clean and moral in our living. Honestly, that sounds pretty boring to me. And it also doesn't provide real hope. Heartwarming stories are designed to inspire us, that are designed to inspire us are for the Hallmark Channel and not the Bible. Hope, real hope. Nothing wrong with the Hallmark Channel, by the way. It's just that. <laughs> hope, real hope. Saving hope comes through stories of deeply broken and sinful people, people like us, or the kind of people that we could be if left to our own devices, who find hope not in ourselves, but in a hope beyond us, in someone outside of our circumstances. This is a disturbing passage. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But my hope is that as we come to it today, we are moved beyond the ravages of sin to see a picture of hope, transformation, and divine breakthrough for both Judah and Tamar. It is a story of God triumphing over the evil in us and among us. So let's read Genesis 38. Remember, Joseph has been sent, well, sold by his brothers into slavery, and we ended chapter 37 that he was in Egypt. Beginning at verse 1 of 38, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. They again, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she was born, when he, when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. 
Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring up for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till uh, Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah, when Judah had com, had, was comforted, he went to uh, Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enium at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral because she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet, the cord, and the staff. When Judah identified them, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time, came of her la- when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but as he, drew it back, as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this is a very strange word, a very hard word to even read. And yet, Lord, you have given it to us in your holy word. 
to help us know our own sin, but Lord, even more to know that you are a forgiver of great sin. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're just a few weeks into looking at the life of Joseph, a series we've called The Gospel According to Joseph. A couple weeks ago, we were in Genesis 37, 12 through 36, where we find that Joseph's brothers seek to harm him and end up selling him into slavery instead of killing him as they had planned. They also allow Jacob, their father, to assume that Joseph was killed by a wild animal using Joseph's royal multicolored robe torn and dipped in blood as a prop to trick Jacob. What we said we need to be aware of as we came to our text a few weeks ago is that God is at work in the midst of evil, evil done by us, evil done to us. And the main point of the text, which will unfold throughout this story, is what we mean for evil, God means it for good. He means it for our good, and He means it for the good of the whole world. The evil in this family, unfortunately, hasn't ended with Joseph being sold into slavery. As evil as that was, it gets worse. As Joseph is beginning his life of slavery in Egypt, Judah will begin a life of slavery to the sin done to him and the sin that he will perpetuate. Also, like Joseph, his life will be lived outside the land promised by God. Judah voluntarily leaves his brothers. The going down that the text says of Judah repeats the going down of Joseph that we'll read next week in 39.1. God had promised Abraham that his family would become a great nation and a blessing to all the nations, but This second and now third generation seems to be on the verge of spoiling God's promise. What we see in our text that we must remember as we come to is that our sin or the sin perpetrated against us can't spoil God's plan. Our sin or the sin perpetrated against us cannot spoil God's plan. Our sin is not greater than God. Just as we saw last week that evil isn't greater than God, neither is our sin. No one is beyond the love and hope of God. And today we'll see this reality in the lives of Judah and Tamar. As we've noted, Judah had some significant relational and emotional baggage in his life. He needed a fresh start and struck out on his own, and it's hard to fault him. (laughs) Who would want to be in the family that he was born into? Who would choose to remain in such a dysfunctional family? Who would want to be reminded by your father's uncontrolled mourning that Joseph was the son that he loved? Would you want a father like Jacob? After leaving his family, the text says that Judah turned aside, which is often used in Scripture as shorthand for becoming involved in false worship, personal wickedness, and social evils. But Judah's problem was not merely that he became involved in these things. His main problem is that he 
believed that leaving, making a clean break would fix everything. But it didn't. As one commentator says, because you can't make a clean break from yourself. Judah's family dynamic isn't much better than the one he grew up in. The text likely indicates that Judah was an absentee father. It was often the role of the father to name their children, and yet we see that after the first son, Judah named him Ur. The other two sons were named by Shua, his wife. Now, he may not have been absent, and his wife maybe just took the naming rights away from Judah because he did such a poor job of naming Ur, because in Hebrew's back, Hebrew backwards, it means evil. So if you're, you're, you know, his wife might have been like, you lost your right to naming our kids from here on out. Whatever the case, Judah's family has all the same sorts of problems that his birth family had. Judah finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur. Her name is Tamar. And Ur is so wicked that the Lord puts him to death. Doesn't explain what that wickedness is, but it's pretty bad. And this leaves Tamar a widow. And in that culture, one of Ur's brothers was to marry her, to provide an heir for the family and for her. This is referred to as uh, Leverite marriage. The widow of the dead brother is left without the possibility of her husband's portion of the inheritance unless she has a son. And so it was a brother's duty to marry her and to provide her with an heir. But in doing so, that brother would get less of his inheritance, of the possible inheritance, because his dead brother's portion would have gone to him, now goes to the heir that he's providing for his brother's widow. And so this is where we find Onan, seeking his own gain, both financially and sexually. He does what he's told and marries Tamar, but uses her for his own sexual desires without giving her a child. This is the sin of Onan. Not that he wastes his semen on the ground, which is often referred to as the sin of Onan, but that he uses Tamar for his sexual desires without fully giving himself to her and providing an heir. That is the sin of Onan. So the two of his grown sons, Ur and Onan, are deemed so evil by God that they are struck dead. Judah fears for the life of his youngest son, Shelah. Judah has decided that it is Tamar who is cursed. It couldn't be that he's had anything to do with his family's dysfunction. Let's blame Tamar and get rid of her. So he sends her back to his father's house to wait until Shelah is old enough. Judah's insincerity and refusal to deal with his own sin will leave the survival of his family in jeopardy because he can't find a different wife for Shelah without admitting that his son is old enough to fulfill the obligation to Tamar. Judah is a broken and hurt man. In many ways, he is no better than his own father who had deeply hurt him. I'm sure Judah hoped to do better. <laughs> Be better, not make the same mistakes that his dad made, and yet here he is, living apart from the family of promise, 
his family line in jeopardy. But he's no better than Jacob. And not only his past actions, but in the actions he's going to participate in. Like Judah, we can become so blind to our own sin, to our own guilt. And that blindness can make the harmful effects for our own sin even worse as it perpetuates itself to others. Tamar, on the other other hand, consider what this young woman has experienced. Her first husband was struck down by God, which left her a very young widow. Tamar's second sexual partner, Onan, abused what was supposed to be a duty of kindness and provision. And even worse, Onan turned his familiar duty into an opportunity to exploit her. If he had no intention of fathering children to take Ur's place, there was no reason for him to step in in that role. It could have been passed to another. But Onan used Tamar for his own personal pleasure, his own gratification. And so Tamar's second partner is struck dead leaving her a widow twice and still childless. She has been privately shamed by the abuse of Onan and publicly shamed by the growing perception that she was cursed. If Judah would not keep his promise to Tamar to give her Shelah, she would remain in that unwanted condition at the very lowest level of society. This young woman who was once full of hope for the future was another victim of the sins of the members of God's chosen family. Sins that turned life in the family of blessing into a trap of suffering and shame. Unfortunately, this story, though very old, is seen in very new ways in our time and place. According to the CDC, the number of women and men who have been sexually abused in our society and culture is beyond fathom. Over half of women, one in three men, oftentimes perpetrated by those in the church. This is the shame of our culture and we've put this shame on others. And as a church, as a group of elders, we want you to know that if that is you, this is a place to find safety and comfort, not in us, 
though the people of God can and should provide that, but in Jesus and the one who will not abuse, who will not use his position for his own gain. In many ways, Tamar was an innocent victim of the sins of Judah and his family. And the trap that she laid for Judah was about her getting justice and righting a wrong. But man, was her trap highly risky. And not to mention the questionable ethical, moral, and legality of it. She was intentionally engaging in prostitution to entrap Judah. And their relationship as father-in-law and daughter-in-law is problematic, even in that society. Tamar is out to right a wrong, but we see it done in a profoundly troubling way. Once Judah finds out that she's pregnant, look at how quickly he desires to get rid of Tamar. He was still blaming everything on her, everything that had gone wrong, and now there's an opportunity to dispose of her, to get her out of the way, which meant Shayla could finally get married and things could move on. This dilemma would be resolved and the family might survive. Best of all, Tamar could be condemned and Judah could position himself as the fine, upstanding member of the community upholding good morals and values. But Judah remained completely blind to his own sin and hypocrisy. When confronted, after years of blaming everyone else, Judah recognizes his own guilt. He had lied to Tamar, denying her rights and leaving her without any recourse. The evidence of his own guilt was also the undeniable evidence of the lie that had that he had believed about Tamar. It was not her fault that his sons had died. She was not cursed. He was living proof of it. These events that we have just worked through probably stretched out over 20 plus years, a, a period of time that matched the length of time that Joseph will be in Egypt between chapters 39 and 42 when the brothers show up in Egypt. The two stories are essentially running in parallel so that Judah's confession of guilt to Tamar probably occurred shortly before the events of chapter 43. In those subsequent events, a humbled Judah showed compassion to his father, understanding Jacob's hurt, and pledged that he himself would accept the blame if he failed to bring Benjamin safely home to his father. Judah now is willing to lay down his life to save the family. What's interesting is the location of Tamar's trap. We are told it's a place called Enaim, which literally translates as the opening of the eyes. We know that from the Gospels, time and again, Jesus gave sight to the blind. God is the one who reveals himself to us and reveals us who we really are. He gives sight to our blindness to sin in our lives. Only God can give sight to the physically blind and the spiritually blind. Our eyes must be open to the depth of our sinfulness, that which we might be surprised to find lurking within us. How can that be in my heart? 
graciously for, God, for us, God will often not hold back in how he opens our eyes to our own sin. Like Judah, it's often embarrassing, shameful, and makes us look foolish. It's through these experiences that God shows us our sin, receives us in forgiveness and love, and creates a humility within us, making us more like his son Jesus in the process. We also see the amazing truth which Judah's broken and rebuilt life points us to is that we don't need to be crushed by our sin. Having our eyes open so that we see the wrong that we do and the hurt that we cause can be incredibly crushing and demoralizing, yet God does not turn us away. He doesn't run away from us. He comes to us. God can and does crack the hardest of hearts. God can and does reclaim the biggest of sinners. The improbable repentance of Judah is incredibly good news for all of us who are much bigger sinners than we can ever imagine, yet more dearly and deeply loved than we could ever dare hope. Tamar's story is equally glorious. She is declared righteous by Judah. She is no longer the family disgrace, the girl who brought bad luck to everyone who came into contact with her. She is welcomed back into the family, and now she is the one who brings hope of the family, of the line of the promise of Abraham to come. Later in Scripture, Tamar appears in two points. First, at the wedding of Ruth and Boaz, where the elders pray, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Once thought cursed, Tamar's memory was now prayed as a model of God's blessing. Centuries later, Tamar will appear in Matthew's genealogy as a woman in the line of Jesus. Tamar had faced hopeless, a hopeless future at the bottom of society, childless, abused, a widow. However, through God's intervention, she became a mother of our Messiah. She became a mother of Jesus. What an incredible picture of God's intervening grace. We are all, in some form or fashion, damaged goods, profoundly broken like Tamar. But that is why, precisely why Jesus came. Jesus is the son who didn't leave and run away from his family. Jesus is the son who came to seek and to save his family. The Son of God personally stepped into history and chose to be born into this sort of family <laughs> and chose to be born through Judah and Tamar. Jesus was the son of a sinner and prostitute who came to save sinners, who welcomed prostitutes, both literal prostitutes and those who are spiritual prostitutes, giving themselves to all kinds of other gods, Jesus says, come. 
Judah had blamed Tamar for his sins to maintain his own innocence. We often do the same. Jesus takes our blame and our shame so that it might be put to death with him at the cross. He now covers us with his perfection, saying, you are righteous like I am righteous. Taking away our sins and making us lovely to his heavenly Father. In that way, he removes our curse forever and welcomes us safely into the family of God, where we are loved and protected by him. If you haven't seen it yet, what we see in our text is that unexpected righteousness is ours in Jesus. For sinners like Judah, for victims like Tamar, for people like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that unexpected righteousness is ours in Jesus. Lord, we are not righteous. As we were reminded in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. Except for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would know your unexpected righteousness given to us in Christ. Lord, that the shame and guilt Lord, would be known no more because you know it no more. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by standing and singing how deep the Father's love for us.